Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Perinatal Podcast. I'm Meg Duke, and I am elated to have your presence again with us this week. This week on the show, I have Stephen J. Miller. He obtained his bachelor's and master's degree in psychology at Northern Michigan University. He is currently in the part-time Master of Social Work program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Go Badgers! Stephen is an advocate for discussion among social workers about the impact of infertility on one's mental health, which makes him super perfect for why we are here today. Stephen and his wife had struggled with infertility before being successful in using IVF, resulting in now almost five-year-old twin boys. Stephen started his own podcast, Miles, M-I-L-E-S, highlighting the male experience of infertility and family building. He joined Men's Helpline as a board member in 2023. Men's Helpline is a nonprofit whose mission is to provide emotional support to all men who struggle with pregnancy loss and infertility. After his MSW, Stephen plans to become a licensed clinical social worker and specialize in reproductive mental health and continued work with the nonprofit. This is such an important topic. I feel like birthing people, we're, we're doing a better job of getting some awareness about fertility and struggles and support and community. And often non-birthing people are overlooked in a number of ways. And so it's really helpful that this space is available to men out there, um, that we're highlighting the information there, a a lot more about it. And we get into such a beautiful discussion. So thank you all so much for showing, showing up again this week. Please welcome Stephen Miller. The Perinatal Podcast is supported by Muse. Muse is a brain-sensing headband that uses real-time biofeedback, much like a heart rate monitor senses your heartbeat. It then uses this information to train your mind to meditate better, be more focused, and have more restful sleep by translating your brain activity into the guided sounds of weather. When your mind is calm and settled, you hear peaceful weather. Busy mind, you hear stormy weather to cue you back to focus. Afterward, I can see post-session reports in the app and get feedback on how in the zone I was during my meditation. Now I can see myself improve over time, which encourages me to continue meditating. Muse is backed by research from Yale, Harvard, MIT, and NASA. Muse S is one of my favorite tech pieces to use in calming my mind. This means I'm able to have better focus, stay more present in the moment, and be more engaged with life without feeling overwhelmed. If you're interested in trying it for yourself, you can get my 20% off discount at choosemuse.com slash amplifywellness or use promo code amplifywellness at checkout. Your mental health is your dopest health, but you don't have to tend to it by yourself. Get a tribe, get inspired, and you'll get ahead. Get someone to talk to, don't keep it bottled in. You're beautifully human, you should remember this. So it's okay for you to feel emotions. At times we all need to clear our heads And when you do, just holler at Therapy by Meg Hello, Stephen, welcome to the show It's so great to see you It's great to be here and I'm looking forward to it Yeah, hey, so um, I like to start off when I know people Not through me randomly DMing people How do we know each other? Um, was it Monique that kind of connected with us, right? I got Instagram, I think I got a message with i think dr Elfemia maybe and yes. so, yeah so we kind of got connected that way and i was a guest on hers on, on monique's podcast yeah yes monique farouk who is also a friend of our podcast uh and host of infertility and me thought you and i needed to connect which i love i love 
for as much as I wish that I could get off Instagram sometimes, I love the opportunities to build the connections and meet the people that I have. So it's definitely very yeah. yes and. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So how did you get in? How did you decide to, to get into mental health? It's interesting because I think it more chose me rather than me choosing it. Mm -hmm. um, when I graduated in 2009 with a, I had a master's degree in experimental psych. Um, my plan was to go to get a PhD. Sure. And this was right around the turn of like the, like the recession and everybody was going back to school and, um, applied for five different schools and didn't get into any. And so, um, yeah, my wife, had a job out in Virginia, you know, we got married in August, you know, right after I graduated and moved out of Virginia with no job. You know, my wife had a job teaching and my wife had talked about working for this agency, working with teenagers. And I thought she was out of her mind. Like, I'm like me, like of all people, like of all people working with this population, never, never would have thought it because my, my whole goal was to do research. Um, and the research I did was not even remotely close to, you know, social work. So, yeah, so long story short, I ended up getting a job with that agency and has ba basically been in the field of social work ever since. Wow. So, That's amazing. And that what an interesting story, too, about like a recession hits and lots of people decide to go back to school. That makes sense. But uh, the flooding of the applications and all of that. And so it's funny how the universe redirects our feet sometimes yeah yeah times. yeah <laughs> you know, oftentimes yeah yeah so yeah i mean i i honestly fell in love with it i love the field i love what we do you know just as a whole of social work of getting in there at macro level to mezzo and even micro level you know work and stuff i just you know our profession does such a phenomenal job with interacting with people and yeah, I just I, I love it, you know, and, you know, couldn't, you know, find myself doing something else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so tell me about tell us all about the men's helpline. Yeah, so that got started. Oh, I think Daniel Landa, who is the founder, started in about 2021. Um, I started getting more active on like on Instagram and LinkedIn. And I want to say that we connected on LinkedIn and we had done a panel discussion with somebody that we mutually knew like in Australia and ended up like later on, like a, a few weeks later, he asked whether if I wanted to be like a board member. And he said, like, this is what we're you know, you know, giving me the spiel of what we wanted to do. And I'm like, this is exactly numero uno on my list. And I literally have a list that's literally right up here that says nonprofit for male like infertility. Um, so what Men's Helpline actually is trying to accomplish is it's reducing the stigma of male infertility, but it's also changing the way that men have been receiving support. So we are in the works of developing like a peer-to-peer -peer network so connecting with a guy that's already gone through infertility or like miscarriage pregnancy loss and connecting them with the guy where that's currently in it you know so you don't have that that 
you know, misconception of infertility and miscarriage and stuff like you, you have a guy that's already connected and knows like what that's like. Now, everybody's, you know, story is obviously different, but it's really about getting to the fact that like, hey, I like we've been there. Like we've everybody on our board has been had some sort of infertility or miscarriage. And, you know, often we're considered a silent partner. You know, women, you know, get the support as they should you know like they they have the physical piece of it the emotional piece you know a man like we have the emotional piece and honestly there's times where we felt very helpless you know and not knowing how to support like our partners you know putting our grief like on this on the back burner while we're trying to manage and be a supportive you know par partner and everything mm -hmm. so Daniel had that, you know, had that experience, you know, like uh, they've had, you know, they did IVF for, you know, genetic reasons and, you know, had the experience of, you know, he had, they had ended up having a miscarriage and his former supervisor had basically said like, well, we still need you to work. And Barry was very dismissive of the whole experience. Um, and that really was like the catalyst for him was like, you know, like this needs to change, you know, like we need to make sure that, you know, men are getting the support that they need, what, you know, and that's kind of our mission, you know, our mission is really to kind of change the support, you know, that men receive, but also reducing the stigma of making it okay to talk about infertility and miscarriage and loss. Absolutely. It is really it's really interesting, and I, I expand some to all non-birthing partners, no matter what the situation is, um, through adoption, IVF, um, you know, a, a surrogate, um, same-sex couples, or, you know, what, all of that. To say, though, it really is interesting how far we have to go for birthing people in physical and mental support, and how much that partner gets overlooked. Um, I've had a number of guests I've been very lucky to have on the show, and we talk about birth trauma and all of the things that go on, and a lot of times they'll mention their partners. They they wheeled the baby off one way, they wheeled me off the other, and they left my husband standing in the delivery room by himself for an hour, for hours, for who knows, whatever. And yeah. there's no explanation, there's no support, there's no awareness. You're talking about a pregnancy loss, the death of someone's child, and they're like, no, I'm going to need to see you on Monday that yeah. it seems so one plus one equals two to me that you would give somebody time for grief and bereavement and yet here we are not being able to experience that at all and it's not even in the hospital settings either like it's in within families you know like i've had Absolutely. conversations you know like with one of my my former co-workers like husbands we were out for a drink because it was like my last day and we you know kind of started talking about like the podcast that i've done and he was like, you know what, honestly, he's like, it wasn't until like my, like his wife talked to his brother, his brother and his wife were going through IVF and they've had four transfers. None of them took. And he said like the whole time, I never even thought to ask my brother, like who, like how he was doing. It took my, well, like his wife to ask, you know, the brother say, how are you doing? And it kind of took him, you know, he stuck step back a little bit he's like wow i've never even thought to even ask him how he was doing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know we don't give men the space 
you know, we don't give them like the time to talk, you know, to to say it, you know, like, and like, and this is not to like discount like the support that, you know, women, you know, deserve all the support and that they need. And, you know, we, you know, often they'll see it as like, you know, men versus, you know, right. men's support is different, right? You know, we don't see a lot of men wanting to go to groups, you know, and, you know, going to the therapy, which I will honestly say, like, it is definitely worth it for her to go to therapy, but yes. not all men are comfortable with that, you know? So we were kind of looking at like, like, well, how, what better way can we give them the support, you know, make sure like they're, they're not feeling alone in this and really like connecting them with someone that's already gone through it, that gets it. Mm-hmm. You know, we feel like that is going to be a, a game changer for some men, you know, to be able to, bounce ideas off you know find those little tricks you know the trade you know of how to, how do you afford this like how you know not every state has mandated coverage yeah right. so it's like finding those little tricks of like budgeting you know like you know when my wife and i did ivf we took out a zero interest credit card for 24 months and that's how we paid for meds all right so we just literally would charge it and then we would pay say it again Say it again for the cheap seats in the back. I'm just kidding. There are no cheap seats. Everyone is welcome here on the podcast. But <laughs> say it again, because I don't think people understand how expensive IVF is. They're like, oh, you can't get pregnant? Just do IVF. That magically assures you a baby. And is obviously, you did what? Now say it again. <laughs> yeah. So like we took out a zero interest credit card yes. for twenty, like a 24-month yes. zero interest. Yes. Like, and basically got that just to pay for METs. Because our beds were at least two, three grand, you know, like a piece, yeah. you know, and then we did four, like four rounds of egg banking. So that's like four months. So you think that's like 12,000. And, you know, we also had, you know, the luxury of my aunt basically using her inheritance money for my grandparents was the exact amount that we needed for IVF. And she basically just transferred the money to us and has never asked for a cent back. Wow. So, you know, in social work, we all know we don't, we're not making six figures, you know, and as a teacher, they're not, okay. she's not making six figures either. So right. it was really the only way that we could afford it. And that took a long time, you know, for us to be able to, you know, kind of accept that and be okay with it. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. Well, and to speak to a point that you'd made earlier, it's kind of, they talk about like, um, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this and I'd like to apologize, but I, I feel like it bears mentioning that the expression is like, you know, equity and social justice is not, is just having more for one person doesn't mean less for somebody else. It's not pie. And I absolutely butchered that, but I think everyone is like, oh yeah, I know she's talking about even though she butchered it, but that's the same thing here with support for people going through fertility struggles. Obviously, we want to have that for the birthing person. Obviously, of course. And that yeah. doesn't mean giving some to men is taking any away from the, the woman. And it certainly doesn't mean, the, you know, oh, well, we've got to focus on the woman. And therefore, the men just need to, you know, suck it up, tough it out on their own. It's not pie. <laughs> We, no. there is there is space for all of it and i i i do know that we speak 
intentionally about acknowledging the situations other people have gone through in fertility, trying to conceive pregnancy loss and all of that. And we don't participate in the trauma Olympics. We do not. And also making sure that we are able to say, and also birthing partners are going through it and they need support and help and to destigmatize and all of that. Yeah. And I'm glad that you said that because it's exactly how, like at Men's Health, that's how we view it, right? It's an addition. It's not to take away from any, yes. like any of the support, whatever that like women are receiving is really an addition. And honestly, like the addition helps the couple overall, right? I mean, of if course. men's mental health, if they have better ways of coping with the stress of seeing their partners distressed you know and the psychological distress and that that they could see i mean male factor infertility you know men are more likely to have depression and anxiety you know with that diagnosis so if you think about it like offering men support is offering support for the couple 100 i mean you can't be your most loving supportive attentive aware partner if we say all the time, you can't feel poor from an empty cup. And if you are finding yourself to not be in a supportive space and feeling supported yourself, how can you be as supportive and communicative and empathetic and compassionate for everything else that's going on? Um, and so that really is kind of the crux of it, figuring out. We talk a lot about how it takes a village and it's like, we're not necessarily focusing on the two main people in your village we got to start there. I mean, it's a couple's issue. I mean, when you think about if men aren't willing, you know, there's so many men that have talked about how they don't feel that they can give their burdens over to their, their partner because they're already stressed. Yes. Like as men, we don't want to add to the stress, you know, like, and I, that's not a great way of doing it, but I mean, that's the mentality is like, we don't want to, and stress to an already stressful situation. So we just basically keep mom and just like status quo keep going on. Yeah. But oftentimes when men do that, women will come back and say, like, my husband or my partner, number one partner, like does not care. Yes. And it's not the case. Men aren't talking about it, but it's not because they don't care. It's because they don't want to add stress, right? right. And when you're going through infertility and it, like I completely 100% agree with you, like it takes a village mm-hmm. and support that you get from your partner is different than what you get from your parents, right? Compared to a friend. I mean, like there's all different kinds of support that, you know, one gets when going through this. Right. So it's just, yeah, I, it needs to happen. You know, like men need to get the support. Mm-hmm. You know, men need to be able to communicate that, you mm-hmm. know, because that helps with like reducing misunderstandings, right? right? So if you had clear communication, positive coping skills with managing the stress and improving the relationship, to me, I think that's a win-win for everyone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And 
I, we have been talking, I've been talking about this a lot. I, I teach at the University of Kansas in the graduate department of social welfare and all of this. And we talk about like, it takes a village, but it's like, we don't have in the United States, really, we don't have intergenerational living anymore. Your aunt and your cousin and your grandma and your sister are not right down the street. And the village that they say it takes is not as readily available for people. And so we really need to make sure we're nurturing those sacred spaces that we do have in our partners and uh, in the people who are acutely involved in the situation. So that absolutely needs to be the place that we go. And it's really nice because I do appreciate what you're saying too, to be able to come to your partner, to your wife and say, I'm not doing well, and here's what I'm doing about it, instead of putting that burden on her, which it's not a burden, but the added responsibility. Yeah. Let me just, if I may step back out of that for a second. We talk about that a lot. I taught um, suicidal ideation and self-interest behavior over the summer, and we talk about the burdensomeness that people experience as a often as a symptom of suicidal ideation. And, and I said, you know, there's a difference between being a burden and someone's responsibility. Some people have physical ailments, limitations, whatever it might be that require them to require people to help them. And they are somebody else's responsibility that doesn't make you a burden. And so by expressing your needs to your wife doesn't make you a burden, but it does like, she's not just going to be like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Good luck with that. <laughs> but being able to participate in the things that you're describing, you're saying, look, this is how I'm taking control of the situation the best I can. This is how I'm participating in my mental health. These are the tools that are available to me and the resources. And here's how I can help us to be able to function better. I'm going to be a, a better partner this way. And I can communicate to you the things that I need that you can help me with. And certainly I can help you with as well. And opening those lines of communication and vulnerability can be so meaningful. Yeah. And I think one of the key things that I think, and like I said, this is very anecdotal, but like this is, this is my this is my wife and I, but before we even did IVF, like right before, like we knew that if we didn't have anything to occupy our time, we would 100% be focusing on like the infertility and yeah. we would drive each other nuts. So we took a giant leap and decided to like host foreign like foreign exchange students. So they oh. they were uh, they came like in August and they left in June. So like like all three of the exchange students like saw some piece of IVF. Um, Fascinating for them. And honestly, though, like, but it was such a game changer for us because we focused on other things, right? I mean, we went to concerts and like sporting events and like just the different you know events that they were part of i mean we were all we were all in like we went to you know we traveled and did lots of you know different fun stuff and it allowed us the time to not 100 percent solely focus on our journey yeah. you know it, yes. it was tough you know but i can't imagine what how much tougher it would have been like if we didn't have them there Right. Wow. Wow. What an inch. Thank you for sharing that. That is really interesting to me. And again, what an education for them and an opportunity to, these are not things that we are taught here in the States for sure. We're no. not taught about like, 
you know, in fifth grade, we're given a thing of pads and deodorant and we're told about our bodies ish and be about your merry way. But like, we don't talk about ovulation cycles and tracking and fertility and how your body changes and all of these things. And heaven forbid, we actually talk about like the hormones and everything behind all of that. And it's interesting you mentioned that because I'm sure I don't know how many times y'all have heard this, but I can say for myself and a number of clients and friends, how many times people are like, just stop thinking about it and you'll get pregnant. And it's like, okay, tell me how to stop thinking about it. But you figured it out. Adopt some foreign exchange students. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But, right. but that's yeah. how you're right though. Finding meaningful things to participate in and engage in that are outside of the fertility journey can be really helpful. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, for, like I said, for us. I mean, like it gave us other things to focus on. And yes, there were still conversations about like doing IVF. I mean, we went to three different clinics and jumped through how many hoops, you know, like, you I mean, probably just like everybody else and being the professional hoop jumper. But I, it was nice, though. I mean, it allowed us the opportunity to focus on fun things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And even if you don't host an exchange student, although it is a very good experience it is a very good experience and like we are going to do it again someday but yeah. um even if it's not that like finding something go on vacation you know mm -hmm. and i know how easy it is to say like oh well we need to save money and we need to do you know we're doing ivf we're paying for meds totally get it but right. if you can find ways to go on vacation like or do a day trip or something you know do it for your own sanity mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. i like that you're saying step outside of the routine right and the day-to-day -day. yeah i like that very much yes but yeah. also i mean look into yeah looking into all of those different things and i love that too and now i'm sitting here like wow we have a two and a four-year-old so absolutely not but one day i'm like we should host some foreign exchange students that would be such a lovely thing and what a great experience for people to get to participate in that anyway that's so such a unique thing to do. That's really, really very interesting. Um, so I love the tagline, lightening the load women have historically shouldered alone. And I was hoping maybe you could elaborate, like, how did, how did we come up with that? What is the goal there? What does that look like? What steps can we do to help people start that journey? One of the biggest reasons that we wanted that in our in our mission statement is because like there is a historical narrative that fertility is a woman's issue. Right. And as we all know, like that is not the case. You know, like it is not a 50-50, but it's like a 33, you know, 33 in dual factor, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it impacts everyone. It doesn't matter what you like, what race you are, like what social and economic status. Um, I had a guest, um, Dr. Ku, who's at Dallas IVF, and his phrase is that infertility is an equal opportunity offender. He said it doesn't matter where, like, who you are, like, it can impact everyone. So we, as Men's Helpline, like, we don't want to, like, be dismissive of the women's, like I said, the women's support that they're getting. Hmm. But we also recognize that if men are able to speak up more about, hey, I was diagnosed with male infertility, and opening up that conversation, 
And it's like, that's going to reduce stigma. And it's also going to change that narrative from, you know, infertility is a woman's issue to infertility is a couple's issue. Hmm. It's not the woman's fault, right? Because every, historically, that's been what, you know, pop, you know, pop culture says is, well, if it's, you guys are struggling with infertility, it's, it's got to be, it's got to be the woman, Obviously. right? So, and I think my my theory is, is that men's egos, right? I mean, they're like, well, it can't be me, <laughs> you know? And at that point in history, right, we didn't have the science and testing, you know, behind it. But, I mean, now we do. Like, now we recognize that it it's both sides, you know? Like, women can have infertility, men can have infertility, right? So, we really want to change that narrative and reduce the stigma. And I think inherently, if we reduce the stigma about talking about male infertility and seeing it as what it is, as a medical issue, to me, it's, I can't even understand why, why is it stigmatized? Like, this is something that no one's asked for. No one goes in and says like, wow, I really want to do IVF, right? No one does, you know, there are maybe some cases where if people are trying to do like genetic reasons, right? I mean, there are some cases where people do that, but Certainly. I think first and foremost, I think people honestly want to have kids naturally and not have to do IVF mm -hmm. and go through the shots and the, the appointments and, you know, and how sex is scripted, right? I mean, it becomes a whole, it's, it's, the luster of it loses its value, right? I mean, it's very, very stale, like stagnant, very like sterile, sterile, you know. Timed. Yeah. And then you throw on top hormones in there, right? Hormones are no joke. I like. I will say, like, like I took Clobid for three months, I think. In hmm. three months was about much as much as I could handle. Like I. I can remember sitting at my office at work at my former job, like for four hours, like literally like all the drama, like all the things that I thought I had forgotten about just came flooding. Wow. And I just sat there for four hours and emotionally paralyzed. And I'm like, I'm texting, like I'm texting my wife. And like, I literally do not know what to do. Like I am literally just stuck here. Like, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And partly I'm thankful for that experience because it made me realize that I have stuff that I need still need to work on, right? But yeah, self awareness ever, right? Right. <laughs> but also I I didn't tell the doctor either. You know, I thought that, you know what, if this is what I have to deal with, I'm gonna suck it up and deal with it, you know, because I didn't want to ruin our chances. Like I didn't want if this was going to improve our chances, I didn't want to get in the way, be in the way of being successful. Right. And that was a huge thing for me. Look at when I was going through it was, you know, being diagnosed with male infertility. I felt guilty. Like I felt guilty that I was the one getting in the way of her dream of becoming a mother. Mm -hmm. And that was a tremendous amount of guilt that I put on myself. And I've had to work through some of that. Right. I mean, work through some of like i didn't choose this like i did not you know there's no rhyme or reason for it right so i it's it's a lot of you know 
a lot of work and it's easy to feel guilty like that when you see your partner like distressed because their work right they've just had their fourth baby shower of the year and they're across the hall is like my wife's classroom and the teacher's lounge was right across the hall so every time they had a baby shower it was like right there punching her in the face wow right and she couldn't leave right she didn't have the luxury of being in social work where I would honestly purposely schedule home visits. Like, so I was out of the office in the community, like during that time, right? right? So you find like those little tricks, but that's that's not everybody's case. You know, everybody's, you know, doesn't have a luxury of just leaving the office for a couple hours. I, I want to come back to triggers in just a second, but I do I do consider myself a bit of a reference queen. And I also acknowledge that some of my references are nerdy or outdated. Like my favorite TV show is Matlock. And I'm pretty sure most of my listeners are like, who's Andy Griffith? But are you familiar with Harry Potter at all? Yeah, I know Harry Potter. I, I, have, I will be honest. I've not read the books like or seen the movies, but I know Harry Potter. Okay, like, so you won't understand this reference, but if you don't, if you'll roll with me because I'm going to finish yeah. it for the people who are listening like, oh, here she goes again. So there's a, a, a quickly for you, there's a creature called a Dementor and it literally takes away, it sucks all the happiness out of you and it makes you, it leaves you with all of your negativity and Clomid for you was your Dementor. Like, but in real life, Harry Potter acknowledged that the wizarding world is not real. Yeah. That to me, though, when you were describing that, I mean, that's almost exactly how they describe that in the book and in the films. And that's a really wild thing. And I don't know how much people. It's shocking to me the lack of empathy people can have, even even providers. I've had people who are obstetricians themselves say some of the most bonkers things to me. And I'm like, don't you do this for a living every day? How could you possibly think that that was something compassionate to say? It's wild, though. You're literally describing a pill that lived inside of you as a Dementor and you had no spell. Sorry for the Harry Potter metaphor getting dragged on. But to get rid of that. And you felt confined to that because you didn't have... You weren't aware, like, I don't I don't want to take away our chances. And this medication is supposed to be the thing that fixes everything magically. So here we go. And I know I took Clomid for six months. And I know other people who've done it for even longer. And it's just a really wild thing. The, the hormones, the up, the down, the tracking, all of it, very, very difficult. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Because, again, I think the more and more that we hear that, especially from men, I think you're the third male identifying person that I've had on this podcast. So it's really nice to hear from people who've had a view, a different view than what a lot of people have had. And then coming back to what you were talking about with the triggers. I mean, it's, it's the wildest things. It's the smallest things. It's perhaps the thing is silly, not our triggered response to it is silly, but the thing itself might've been silly that can just send us into an emotional tailspin especially when it's blindsided like oh wow I didn't really realize that finding out that a teacher down the hall from me is pregnant was going to make me want to sob in the janitor's closet for five minutes like it's that sort of thing yeah and it's crazy like how how different like my like my wife's reactions to like pregnancy announcements and mine like were very drastically different mm. The announcement in itself for me wasn't really the hugest trigger for me. Mm-hmm. Not that I want people like to have like miscarriage or pregnancy loss. Like I, I really don't want that. But 
the reality of the pregnancy like had not hit me if that makes sense yeah. right i mean somebody announces they're pregnant part of me in my head's like okay they're pregnant okay i don't see them on a regular basis finding out was never the trigger for me because like i said like ultimately was not in my reality at that point and maybe that was a self-preservation factor you know for me but when like babies were born that was the most difficult part because then it became reality that here's somebody whoever that has been able to get pregnant on their own without help and that's my assumptions right but here somebody is that's never struggled mm-hmm. yeah i think for all of us that had experience infertility like we don't wish to struggle upon anybody no absolutely not you know but when people understand it and get it i mean that that's that's our community right i'd be like we build community through similar experiences yet you know a lot of our experiences are different in some levels but you know when when people get it it is so validating Mm. like to be able to talk with somebody it's like oh yeah man like i i went through that too Mm -hmm. you know and to know that there's like that mutual level of i get it yes yeah and the one thing i'll say too is like how crazy it can be with like with triggers i remember like this is a very funny story which obviously if i wasn't in my right frame of mind right i mean right um so we had just did our first transfer and my wife had you know had read up all about like bromine and eating pineapple core and all that stuff right so we did our transfer from her home and you know she asked you know can you give us pineapple i'm like yeah absolutely so i went up and got to the fridge opened the door the glass bowl right because we didn't we got rid of plastic because plastics you know like were whatever so um so because everything is going to kill us and everything is the one more reason why you are not having a baby and you do people don't get this you do anything that you think helps you to feel that small amount of control over helping yourself to have that little bit of edge and making it be this time. I'm with yeah. you. Get rid of the plastic. No, I'm not really, I'm kidding, but I'm with you. Yeah. So I open the door, out comes the glass dish with the pineapple in it and slides out and smashes on the floor. Mm. My instant thought was, oh crap, like I just messed this up. I'm going to fix this, right? But instead of going to the grocery store, which literally was maybe seven, eight minutes from our house, that was it, right? I decided I was going to get most of the pineapple, put it in a bowl, wash it, and then give it to her to like, so she didn't know that like the thing just smashed on the floor. Right. I didn't want to stretch her out. So I was like, you know what? This is how I'm going to do it. I don't want to tell her I'm going to store. I'm literally just going to, to wash it. Right. Give her a bowl. And I sat down and she takes one bite and she's like, why is this pineapple crunchy? And I'm just like, oh. <laughs> and she's like, what happened? I'm like, I tried washing it and the glass shattered. And you probably are chewing on glass shards. Like, like we can laugh at it now like and like we joke that that was probably what made our transfer didn't work the first time you know but um just 
that is literally the level of I need to fix this now, you know, yeah. like the control, right? You don't have like the slowdown. Let's think this through. Let's just go to the store and buy a pineapple. It was make or break. This was going to make our transfer, you know, or not, whatever they need this, you know, like, and that was like, that was my moment, right? And the whole journey, right? It, you literally are doing everything that you can to establish control. And I think some of that is a healthy way, right? I mean, some of some control, right? If you're thinking like, you know, I, I really want to gain myself an edge on, you know, all these results and stuff, like I'm going to, you know, try to eat healthier, or I'm going to let, you know, eat a, a healthier diet, I'm going to eat more vegetables and fruits. You know what? That's just going to help you overall, right? I mean, just eating healthier and eating better, right? And if working out, right? I mean, working out can be excessive. I'll give, I'll give you that. But, you know, one of those psychologists I'm connected with, so Angela Lawson is at Northwestern. She's like, if there's anything that you can do where to manage your stress, do it. If it means taking a supplement, even though there may not be evidence for that and it's not harming you, mm -hmm. who cares? If it means that you are doing things ever that you can do to help manage stress and controlling it, great. But remember, though, stress doesn't cause infertility. That's the biggest thing, you know. And I think a lot of times, you know, like men, like I think and women, you know, feel like, you know, when they don't have good numbers or they almost like blame themselves, right? Because like, oh, I've just been too stressed or I've been... If we, if that was the case, I think the human species probably would be end, right? I mean, would, we wouldn't be here, you know, if you think about the stress of every single day life, right? So, you know, like I said, I'm in the camp where, you know, stress doesn't inherently cause like infertility, but stress does play a factor in how you cope with the journey. Mm -hmm. The Perinatal Podcast is supported by Mom and Dad makers of exceedingly comfortable and stylish pumping, nursing, and maternity bras. Specially designed clips and straps allow for easy access to feed your little one. The design is specified to support the extra weight and increased size of your chest as milk starts to build. And the beautiful fabrics and colors are created to help you feel sexy and current. Go to mominda underscore bras on Instagram, us.mominda.cc for my listeners in the States, and shop.mominda.cc for my international listeners. Use code PERINATAL for 10% off your entire order of $40 or more. This episode of the Perinatal Podcast is supported by Needed, optimal nutrition for mamas before, during, and after pregnancy. My current favorites are stress support with adaptogenic and nervine botanicals selected and dosed to balance and uplift me, immune support because no matter the time of year, my children bring home all kinds of germs from school, and collagen protein, which helps support joints, pelvic floor tissue, skin elasticity, and hair and nail strength. Use code PERINATALPODCAST for 20% off one-time purchase orders or for the first three months of our one-month subscription option. 
which comes back to, and again, I'm obviously biased being a therapist myself, but how, and I do also acknowledge the privilege that exists in being able to access mental health services in a number of areas, not the least of which the United States, but being able to get with somebody, checking with your insurance company, seeing what your agency, company, school, wherever you work offers, um, even if it's employee assistance program, I think most of them offer like six weeks, six sessions, I should say, not weeks, six sessions. Um, of course, obviously, if you're able to pay out of pocket that's and that works for you, that's an option as well. But being able to have that space for yourself, this 50-something minutes for me, once a week, however often it is, where I can process through the things that are going on because the the non-birthing partner is so often overlooked. And yeah, you're right. And I can't speak from my own personal experience being the person with the uterus, but uh, how hard it is and knowing, you know, how often your partner's going to the doctor and having things jammed inside of them and taking pills and having injections and all of the things and the consistent loss and, you know, month after month, all of that adds up. And it's no one's place anymore to have to suck it up and get over it. We all deserve to take up some space in this fertility conversation. We all deserve support connection, community. You mentioned that earlier too, feeling validated, feeling you're not isolated. It's not just you. It's a lot of people. And that validation can be so, so helpful in this process. Yeah. And, you know, like Brene Brown really says it best, you know, and, and I forget like who else? Because I want to say like somebody else has had like there was another like a black woman's had this conversation prior to Brene Brown. So I want to acknowledge that too. Um, but the reality is, it's like when stigma is there, right? The only way that we can like reduce stigma or get rid of it is by normalizing the situation, right? So we normalize that through conversation. For example, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, for example, like this last December, right before Christmas, like the garage door spring had busted, you know, and I could not open like that. That is not a one person thing. And like, I'm not that handy. I will admit that I can do basic stuff, but that, this was out of my realm, right? So, come home from Christmas and like I call person, the only thing, you know, like I find the ad, right? call and comes out and comes and fix it you know and i don't know what what we were talking about but somehow we got to talk about how like i was going back to school and you know we're going to be changing focuses and wanting to work in like reproductive mental health and all that and he just started opening up and said like yeah you know my wife you know like and i had a you know a miscarriage and he said like it was tough he said like it was like one of the hardest things that i had gone through and, and like my he said like my wife was ready to start over again after like a couple of weeks and he's like are you nuts like i like i don't want to do this thing you know like he was so fearful of what well, if this happens again you know and you know and the emotions and you know like the ups like said so the ups and downs just saying hey we're pregnant and then all of a sudden like no no we're not you know and he's like i wish i had somebody there to talk to yeah about that mm-hmm and it's hard for I think people in our generations because our parents were never the ones to talk about it. No, they they were that generation that like kept things you know quiet you know like and 
some level like there's nothing wrong with reaching out to family right if that's what you guys if that's what people choose but i think social media has really amplified that you know there are more than just your immediate circle you know mm-hmm. reproductive medicine has only been here since what 1978 mm-hmm. 78 was when louisa brown in the uk was first born ivf and then elizabeth carr was 1981 in the united states so if you think about it, that's not that long ago, right. <laughs> you know, even though we may think it like, wow, like, eight, like that was 30 some years ago. We were born, right? I mean, so they were coming not, in. Not long at all, really. No. So I think like there is, it's an emerging field. And to highlight <laughs> the male experience as well is there are less than 10 men in the entire country that specialize in reproductive mental health. Wow. Less than 10. There's probably, I think, in the exact numbers, like seven. Wow. Yeah. There could be pe- some people that <laughs> just don't, you know, advertise about it, but of the people I know, there's seven, right? It, there's not a lot of men to be able to be able to talk about this stuff with. So, like, even when we have and say, like, hey, you know, like, we should really go to therapy. That's great. Like, I completely agree. Like, but there are some things that men like want to talk to another man about it, or and especially if they've had experience, right? So I think there it's it's a larger issue with getting men to be, you know, in and getting involved in this space as well. And I think it's getting there, but it is it there's definitely some room for improvement. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, look at not that social work is the only place for mental health, but that's that's my area. So yeah. I mean, the percentage of of men to women ratio is not indicative of the rest of the KU campus or any other campus where I've been. Um, and it really is interesting. I I, don't, I can't speak for you know professional counselors or uh, yeah. therapists, but I can say for sure in social work and um, and that obviously goes even further into perinatal mental health and fertility and, and that sort of specialty also i know we had the uh, postpartum support international national meeting for the united states here in kansas city mm-hmm. um not very many men right so um it and i i think as we continue to deconstruct gender as identity versus gender as dress up I just got a new descent pin that literally says gender is dress up because, you know, we're all born naked and the rest is drag. And if you believe in Adam and Eve, Adam didn't walk out of the Garden of Eden in pleat front khakis and boat shoes. And if right. you don't believe in Adam and Eve, then also you're rolling your eyes along with me either way. But uh, all that to say, to say that you can't wear this dress I'm wearing and I can't wear your striped shirt is just a social construct and the fact that people have grown up having a penis and thinking that that's women's work we're getting away from that that's what we're doing literally you and i right now go us that's what we're trying to do right now is to get away from that helping profession isn't for a man and this is men's work and this is women's work and and we still have a long way to go in that we have a long way to go in decreasing stigma, but look at you just mentioning that and you creating just even having your vibe, I guess, that this person fixing your garage door was like, let me tell you about my fertility struggles. Um, 
I recently started Lexapro and I've just been, I, I just say it out loud. I couldn't, it, it's, it's not, I always tell my clients, it's nothing to be ashamed of and it's nobody's business. So wherever you want to fall on that spectrum for me, I'm like, oh yeah, I just started Lexapro and blah, blah, blah. And it's been really invigorating for me because I've had so many people who are like, oh, me too. Or, oh, I started Zoloft a year ago. It's been amazing. Or this or that or whatever, whatever. You know, obviously speak to your psychiatrist. Everybody go get your psychiatrist, right? I'm yeah. not medication. So, and obviously I have this show. I'm a social worker. So I, I sit in a place of privilege with that. But it's really nice for me. I have no shame or fear of being able to say that. I have no sh shame or fear in being able to talk about my fertility struggles. I definitely feel like I did more when I was going through them. And I definitely know that we have historically received messages that, especially for people with a uterus, like that is your job in life is to recreate life. That's your job. Because that is literally what we did back in the day, not in the 80s, but, but like, yeah. yeah. You know. And to be able, to have our bodies not be able to do that. I've talked with a lot of clients. I've talked to guests on my show, like that you feel like a failure, but but that's what we're continuing to work on as well. We are more than our ability, body's ability to reproduce and whether or not we think that ourselves, we are hearing those messages sometimes and we're really fighting against that. And that's what I'm really happy to have you here to be able to talk to about like, not just for birthing people, it's for everybody. I mean, I can honestly say, like, that was, I mean, something that, like, I, I honestly, like, I struggled with, you know, was, you know, the infertility pieces. I had low, you know, low sperm count, and it, it was hard for me. Like, it was hard for me to fathom, like, why, like, I kept on asking myself, why? Like, why do I have all numbers? Why? And really, there's no research, like there's very little research on male reproductive health yeah. in general. But like, I didn't have those answers. I didn't have the answer of like, why? I've been told my whole life that getting pregnant is super easy and it can just happen one time. Yes, right? which is and, true. Uh, Everybody practice safer sex right. choices for those of you who may be fertile, but you don't know these things. You spend so much time trying to not get people pregnant. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh. But it also like instills, instills this narrative that it's, it's supposed to be easy. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And like, that's a problem, right? I mean, it's yes. it's it's literally gone from one in eight, right? One in eight to now one in six, mm -hmm. right? So the numbers we're getting are- getting more numbers. We're, we're more aware of it. People are reporting it more. People are seeking treatment. Whereas before we just didn't talk about it. We didn't know. And I think there's a still, that's a lot that's not reported. Yes, absolutely. Because if you think about it, how many people that are maybe low socioeconomic status, right? How many of them are actually going to say like, oh, let me do IVF. Right. They kind of it's it's a matter of affordability and that's a, that's a whole nother other pod, you know, episode of yes. you know access right yes but there are so many populations that aren't even part of that conversation and if you think about the even the lgbt you know q plus community that's not even part of the statistics right they utilize fertility treatments because of the different gametes, right? I mean, like they don't have the two parts, right? So they have to do either, you know, for a same-sex relationship for, for you know, cisgender men, they have to use a surrogate because 
they obviously can't carry one unless, you know, they're, you know, transgender, you know, from female to male. I mean, right. but they have to utilize that, you know, women in same-sex relationships, right, have to utilize sperm donor, right? It's cheaper than surrogacy, you know, where surrogacy is about eighty dollars to $200,000, right? Wow. So you think about access, and even when those in LGBTQ, like even when they have mandated coverage, because they don't have the quote-unquote parts, right, the legislation says that they don't have access gotten better it has you know but once i got into this and realized i'm like this is right up social works alley like this is macro this is mezzo this is micro i mean this is literally this is what we do right like we advocate for change like we get people to have access right and I'm not one to like to push like you know you should just do IVF. No, I mean, but I feel like everybody should have the ability to make that choice. That's right? it, and that's it right there. Yes. So it's not about like all you know people. Some people may not believe in IVF, right? I mean, it, they might have like whether that's their religious you know affiliation or whatever their own personal feeling. Some people may not want to do IVF. Some people may want to adopt. And the one thing I'll say about that is that adoption costs just as much as IVF. Adoption so. is preposterously expensive in the yep. And I think people think it's just free for the taking. There's there, you know, like no, it's it's a process. But yet once again, like people should be able to have the choice. They shouldn't be like, well, our only choice is adoption. Yes. We have to do this, right? I mean, people should have the choice. Um, I mean, there's there are so many different levels that social work can be a part of, you know, whether that's in a perinatal clinic. I, I literally, I don't know if you're familiar with like the podcast All in the Mind. Have you ever yes, listened to Yes, yes, yeah. Did you listen to the, the latest one about like the male experience of like perinatal like mood disorders? I have not heard that one yet. I'm going to write it down right now. Okay. So that one, I think, just came out this week. Mm-hmm. And, like, it just made me smile. Like, not that I want, like, a, a guy going through that, but just the right. awareness, right? I mean, to bring this to say, like, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, like, just yes. aren't for women. It, I mean, women obviously have that, right? But the guy talked really about, like, I don't know how, I don't remember like, the exact specifics, but he talked about how when his son was born, like he had his own, you know, trauma history with his dad and stuff like that. He didn't get to, he didn't get to hold the baby. And he said, you know, the baby, like, I don't know if he like he saw it and then like was whisked away and stuff. And then his wife was whisked away. And he's like, I'm left there with uh, getting robbed of an experience, mm-hmm. you know, and had some depression and some anxiety and stuff about that. And, you know, worried about that, you know. His dad, you know, like he said, had a trauma history, like his dad's relationship was pretty, you know, like toxic and was not great. And those thoughts of like, man, it's like, you know, like, am I just going to be like my dad? You know, am I going to screw him up? You know, am I going to have, you know, like, am I going to put my kid through the same thing? Mm-hmm. So men like will think about that. They'll think about their own, you know, childhoods and stuff and worry about, 
what's my capacity to become to be a father Mm -hmm. right and I think those are very healthy questions to ask you know but in some ways that can lead to depression and stuff and especially when you're just like you feel like you've been robbed of an experience of being able to hold your son you know like right after I mean it makes a world of a difference I mean think about how a difference maker that could have been like just to be able to hold his son right absolutely and not only not only that but you know my wife and I were successful right we did we did two transfers our first one didn't work and I can still remember the exact you know location of where I was when I heard that I was driving and um I can still remember it and that was probably the hardest part that was like the bottom of the barrel for me I at that point had stopped caring I didn't care about work I didn't care I was just numb didn't you know and part of that you know like I said we knew that the chances of our first one being successful like was you know a smaller percentage but when you hear that news like there's nothing like it you know of saying there is also that stigma with IVF that IVF equals baby and so when you get to that space even they can tell you whatever the statistics are yeah also that hope not that hope's a bad thing it's this is the whole conversation though how much do you have hope we're cautiously optimistic that's a very common right but you want to be excited and then for me i remember with the second time i got pregnant i said it's the very first time i got pregnant i we called we facetimed everyone and then you know three weeks four weeks later i had pregnancy loss so then the second time my husband was like well i don't want to tell anybody and i was like i hear you you're not wrong here's my thought I'm going to tell a lot of people if I have a pregnancy loss, why not at least let them get excited with us for a little bit if it ends up like that. We eventually ended up not telling people and I had to tell them I had a pregnancy loss, but that really is it, right? Like you and you hold on to that hope and whatever that looks like in I mean you wouldn't do it if you didn't think it was going to work and then you get this phone right. call you're driving. Yeah, it's it's walking like the whatever like the wire of like what do you call that thing between like the high wire right I mean like the yeah, high wire the right? you're balancing the high wire of infertility right to the right you have like all the hope mm-hmm. right and like all the hope and all the wishes and everything there and then to the left whatever is like despair mm-hmm. right and it's like all the what ifs the trauma all the losses and the losses of not just infertility like of pregnancy loss the losses of like having to do this to do IVF you know like to be able to have kids naturally to miss like those pregnancy announcements and like I mean there's so much nuance whatever in it but like you're literally walking on this tightrope between despair and hope because if you but if you lean too much on hope you're going to fall off right and then you're going to have boom just like disappointment but then if you lean too much to the left you can't hope. So like you're stuck in this balancing act of ambiguity and like wanting to be hopeful, but then not wanting to be too hopeful because if you're too hopeful, that means it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's the hard thing for people to get. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yes, it's very, very, it's, it's all very difficult. And that's why it's so nice to be able to have these conversations for people who are out there, because like you said, one in six people 
everyone listening to the show, I would say almost obviously, not necessarily, but almost everyone listening to this show, it's called the Perinatal Podcast, but everyone probably knows somebody who knows somebody who has some sort of fertility issue or whatever that looks like and probably knows somebody even closer to them. And so how can we be more compassionate and allowing space and vulnerability and conversations and communication so that people don't feel isolated, so that people don't feel alone, that they don't have to have walked this journey and this tightrope uh, all or this high wire all by themselves in a, in a way. And so that's what's so helpful for these conversations and sharing in making it more aware, you know, and again, too, like you were yeah. talking about the injustice that we experience with same-sex couples or, or queer couples and um, the legislation that goes with that. Certainly, I know that people are trying to make IVF illegal in a number of states, which blows my mind. Um, gestational surrogacy just became legal in New York State like a year ago, sometime this year even. I, I got to tell you what. It's 2023 right now at the time of recording. Time still has no meaning for me post-quarantine. I'm like, was that last week? Was that last year? I'm not sure. But the only thing to say was in Michigan, Uh it is like compensated surrogacy is still illegal. Mm -hmm. And one of my sister-in-law's really good friends was a surrogate and her whole family was from the UP. And UP meaning Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So that's the Upper Peninsula of Michigan from the Midwest. So <laughs> call ourselves Upers. So like my whole family's from like the Marquette area and stuff. So yeah, um, yeah, we get a chance to go up there. It's definitely beautiful. But um, during her third trimester, though, like she did not go into Michigan because if they found out that she was compensated, she could actually be jailed and be charged with felony. That was the largest eye roll in the history of mankind. For those of you not watching on YouTube, that's. So a a lot of times when I do talks, like when I I very briefly touch upon, like just like the different treatments, right? Um, And when I bring that up, I always ask. And the funny thing is, is that they're not not that I want that I think it's funny to make people uncomfortable. But when I asked a question of, do you think compensated surrogacy should be allowed? And like people like have not really had to sit and think with that, right? And think about like, what, like, I don't have an answer because I never really looked into that. You know, when you think about what a surrogate puts like in like her body like there is the risk of her having like her or they right i mean the birthing partner they have the risk that they could have pregnancy complications that could and inevitably make them infertile Mm -hmm. right or have like being able to have like if topic pregnancy i mean that's even now so you know like with legislation with you you know abortion access and all that so it's always mind blowing, you know, when people like I've never thought about that. But yet every single time that I have brought up and like is this more like I said, my last job, when I found out that we don't talk about this stuff in our education, it was mind blowing to me. And I started asking why. Right. And I did a very non-scientific poll on Reddit and asked in the social work, right? In the social worker, right? How many of you have had, you know, conversations about infertility and mental health, like in your classes? 
And of the 225 people that took that poll, 92.7% said no. Yeah. So then I started zero percent shocked. <laughs> right. So I started asking, like asking coworkers, right? I mean, they've all either had social work, psychology, some sort of involved, right? Counseling, right. And I started asking them, and like, did you ever talk about this stuff in your school? And they're like, no, no. No. But then through our conversations, like Absolutely. I found out that someone was a surrogate, right? Or someone had male factor infertility, some of them had multiple miscarriages, right? We all like we all knew somebody somebody could name at least one person that's had a struggle mm-hmm. you know whether they personally had it or so-and-so yeah. sister was a surrogate right or whatever you know like or somebody's going through ivf right i did like i talk with a foster care unit like at my work and people might think of like you know what in the heck like why 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 would you do a talk on infertility at in foster care mm-hmm. because Adoptive parents are 10 times more likely to have gone through fertility treatments. And 39% of foster parents said their motivation to become a foster parent was because of infertility. Mm-hmm. So if you have a narrative that getting pregnant is super easy, and then you come into foster parents where like that they're motivated to be there, but yet have not actively grieved the loss of having their biological children, right? I mean, like, there's so much to it. Mm-hmm. I also don't feel like, I don't, how was it? I took a class and like, it was like foster care and family work. And the professor said that there's a lot of counties, whether at least in Wisconsin, that will just be a blanket no, you know, for anybody that has infertility. And I'm like, that to me, it's not fair. Like that, it's not fair it's really to say- criteria. Right. And I'm like, there are, I had a guest on like my podcast, which is merging now with our nonprofit, but like he did foster care. Like they didn't do IVF. They didn't do any fertility treatments. I think like his, his wife had like a risk of cancer and stuff. So they're like, no, we don't want to, we don't want to risk it. So like they did the whole foster to adopt route and the initial, like they weren't initially going to adapt, but the foster care workers, like you may want to, check you know foster to adopt just in case you have the opportunity you don't want to have to go back and redo trainings and all that stuff i'm like so he's like yeah okay yeah we'll do that you know i'm not expecting it and now they have two kids right they, that they have adopted out of foster care so um but i will say like that he's had like the most healthiest approach like to infertility like they grieved right he's flat out said like we went to disney world of all places to be like our last kind of closure right so he said part of it was them seeing that (laughs) all the parents struggling with their toddlers and and all that and stuff like it's like i get it you know like my my my, i have twin boys that are going to be five in november so i gave me and i'm like i get people laughing at that you know um yeah so, but a very like healthy approach to it. So I think people can. And I know like that um, I had read some research by Brennan Peterson and there was two other gentlemen that were on that research article. Um, they did like the infertility resilience model. And it was uh, such a different and novel approach to it because when you think about research with infertility, right? It's all been negative. It's all been depression, anxiety, 
you know, um, Natalie Domar from Boston VF has done phenomenal work. Absolutely. I've got to meet her a handful of times and just in awe of her work. Um, but she did research in 93 that basically showed, like, he, she compared the psychological distress between somebody who is experienced or got diagnosed with HIV, with cancer, like in cardiovascular, like heart attack and infertility. And she compared them, right? And the psychological distress of receiving a cancer diagnosis and receiving in, like an infertility diagnosis, not together, but like separately, right? The psychological distress were not statistically different. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I think that's mind blowing to people because people will say like, oh, like, well, cancer, like you can't die from infertility. And like, that's one, that's a very invalidating statement, you know. Yeah, hello, we're not doing the yeah. trauma Olympics. What did we already say, team? <laughs> right, right. So I... Well, stuff- we also talk about the death of a dream, though. And that is a very valid thing as well, especially for people like, you know, there are people who genuinely have known since they were kids that they wanted kids. Yeah. And when you just go through life, I mean, you know what happens when you assume, but when you go through life assuming you'll have kids and then you meet someone or you don't, however your whatever your journey is of having children, but, and you get to the space where you're excited to try to have children and then to be able to hold, it's just not going to happen. The, how invalidating that must be for somebody to be like, oh, well, at least you can't die. I'm like, well, have to, well, don't say at least, but yes. Yeah. I'm so with you. I mean, the part of it though, too, like I, like, I kind of throw out there though, and being that I think it's the September Suicide Awareness Month, right? Yes. Thanks. So, I mean, to, th- to throw this out there, like there was some research done in 2016 that showed that 40, I think 43% of women that have gone through IVF, like in this research, Auto, like 43% has suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. And of that 43%, like 9.2% were considered high risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, that's it, it does happen. But yet, yes, it does. As clinicians, we don't ask about infertility, like, or miscarriage, like in the intake. Mm-hmm. We don't ask about that, you know, unless they're specifically there for that specific purpose, per, you know, purpose. Right. But if you're meeting with adult clients like that are over like reproductive age, why not ask? And if they say no, then that's what it is, mm-hmm. right? But if some people say like, yeah, like I've tried to be, you know, like pregnancy has never happened. I, I had a client that was adopted in my last job and I was the only one to ask the question, of did the parents like were they child free by choice mm-hmm. and then this you know kid came like basically their grandnephew came into their life right and they decided like yep yeah, okay we we'll changed their mind or was it that they were child free not by choice and an opportunity came up mm-hmm. and said so there's two that that is two completely different mindsets right mm-hmm. yes and social work, like we should be talking about that, right? Mm-hmm. We should be thinking about it. Yes. I, I have a client that I worked with, you know, transgender male and PCOS. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, is when we were having these conversations about like the different medical stuff, and they were shocked that I knew what PCOS was. Mm-hmm. 
I knew that there was risk for, you know, gestational diabetes. There's also a risk for depression and anxiety, you know, like there's mental health risks. Another thing, and they're looking at me like, how the heck do you know this? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I have my own podcast on the side, and I literally had a doctor that specializes, like we literally had an episode on PCOS. Yeah. And like I said, like I, I love doing like podcasts because it's it's a learning thing, right? Like we all learn from somebody. You know, it's I don't know, it's been my favorite thing to do is like doing podcasts and stuff. But I think knowing, you know, like what is PCOS, what is endometriosis, you know, like when we're working with clients, it's holistic care, right? We need to be able to know about some of these things. Like we don't have to be an expert and we can know when. We say, like, you know what, we we bow out. This is not our expertise. Maybe we should go to, a, you know, uh, endocrinologist or whatever, you know. Right. But having that awareness of, like, what is that like? And it was a conversation that, like, I had with my, my clients said, just because you have PCOS does not mean that you will never, ever be able to have children. And I said, like, I know you're 17 and you're that's the farthest thing from your mind right now. But as a, at some point, like you may want that. Right. And, you know, like you may want to have like your own kid someday. I said, and you may not. That's completely your choice. But just telling you that just because you have PCOS doesn't mean like you can't. Right. Because there is that misconception like, oh, PCOS, like that's like. Now, it's not a death sentence, you know, but like you're going to have a lot of struggle. And that might be true, you know, but there a are lot. Yeah. that have had children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that because you're right. Like we just don't learn a lot about that, even as mental health professionals. And the, the, again, we're just we're evangelizing the stories here. We're letting people know. And, you know, like you said, too, becoming more competent in it, being humble and asking, um, being willing to do some Googling and read people's research on it and um, make yourself more aware. And like, like I said, the whole goal, you know, being compassionate to one another and and taking care of each other. So to that end, how do we help take care of each other? Where can everybody find you? I'm going to put it in the show notes, of course, but I want to let all the listeners know where they can find you, where they can get connected to all of the things we've been talking about. Yeah, so I'm primarily on Instagram and LinkedIn are probably like the two biggest platforms. So on Instagram, like the handle is sjmiller2024 and LinkedIn I think it's just Stephen Miller, which I know is a very common name. And but um yeah, I mean Instagram probably is like the best, you know, way to reach out wherever LinkedIn. Um I can like give you the email too. So like it's Steven at menshelpline.org. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, so we're we're excited to get you know program up and running, getting some of our campaign to reduce stigma and um you know, biggest thing right now is uh, getting the fundraising and getting that. And so, um, so any help in that with listeners, if you feel like that's something you want to contribute to, like definitely connect with me. And, yes, um, there's a coin that way. All right. And like I said, our pet thing at a peer to peer like network, mm -hmm. I, I, it's going to, it's going to make some changes, I think, you know, and changing the way that, men get approached for infertility like in loss 
I mean, one of one of my really good friends, him and his mom, you know, unfortunately now ex-wife, they had five miscarriages like in a row. And he said every single time we were rushed out the back door. And he's like, I hated that. Like he like he was almost like shunned. And like we were like something like we just got out the back door. And and I think in some level, like they wanted to be respectful of the couple, right? But that respectfulness led to more like alienation, right? And isolation and shame almost, you know. So I think there's a lot of things that we can do like within clinics, you know, that could be changed as well. I think asking men, you know, like separately from their partners, because I guarantee that like there is not going to be one guy that's going to say like, yep, I'm struggling in front of his wife. There might be. I'm like, I'm not going to say 100 percent, but. Well, we open the space for that. We here right right now in this moment, not that you need our permission, but Stephen and I are opening the space for you to do that. But I acknowledge also, like, it's hard not to do the comparison game when you're not being poked and prodded and stuck and as much at least. But the communication piece, we don't suffer in silence anymore. Yeah. 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 Opening this opening space for like the man to even just one on one just talk and say like, even just yes. ask, how how are you doing really? Yes. Not the don't like take the mask off, you know, let them talk, you know. And I think the other thing that I've also like learned in my experience is I, you know, one of my good colleagues, um, Dr. Bill Peacock, phenomenal psychologist out in Baltimore and has been in the field zone since like 1985 or 87 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a long time. And he said the one thing that he does like when he, you know, talks with, you know, other you know, like identifying men, right, is never talk about sharing it. Like, what, what are your feelings or what are your thoughts? Like, what are your feelings about that? What are your emotions, right? Because mm-hmm. we don't get, we don't talk about emotional feelings but like if you ask him it's like what's your experience been like yeah opens up the whole like and what, what really happens is that he, he talks about the emotions and feelings but like just the question of just like what's your experience been like yep he can describe that right he's like it's been it sucks right it sucks seeing that my wife coming home from a day of teaching and they've had their third baby shower and her just sobbing on the floor like in really for men like that's a helpless feeling yeah you can't do you can't fix it like we we are ones that we want to fix everything and this is something we can't fix right and that's hard yeah right i mean to sit with that that knowing like there's absolutely nothing that i can do to make this better mm-hmm, mm-hmm. absolutely so and- i th- Getting yeah. that support and opening up that space for conversation and validation and connection is yeah doesn't necessarily produce us a baby, but it does help us to feel supported and seen and taken care of and helps create yeah. that that bond. Right. And overall benefits the couple. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Everyone, please go yeah. check the show notes. I'm going to have all of this contact information. Check it out. Share the word. You know somebody who's experiencing fertility struggles, pregnancy loss. You know somebody. You may be that person. <laughs> please use it yourself. If not, please share it. 
Um, that's the whole point of this is to help people to feel that connection. So everyone out there, stay curious, not judgmental. Goodbye. If spending time with the Perinatal Podcast is something you value and enjoy, it would mean so much if you could write a review of the show on your app and don't forget to subscribe so you get a notification when new content is posted. Take a moment to leave a five-star rating too. Fresh content is available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your content, and you tuning in to every episode is what helps keep us going. Follow me at Amplify Wellness with Meg on Instagram, and you can find more content by searching the hashtag, The Perinatal Podcast. Our show is executive produced by David Presley and produced by Meg Duke. Our theme song was written and performed by Antoine McDuffie.